Our sales were growing incredibly fast. We had taken market share away from the pre-existing market leader. So lo and behold, 18 months later, they come out in the market with a competing product that infringes my patent. In the UK system, if somebody infringes and you want to enforce your patent rights, then the other side will claim that your patent is not valid. So there was nothing else for it. And I, I was the, either I had to turn the other cheek and walk away, or I had to fight. This is Mandy Haberman, an inventor known for her globally acclaimed baby nursing products and the high-profile patent infringement battles she's fought to safeguard her intellectual property. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Andrea Madho. I'm a startup founder, a CEO, and co-inventor with patent-pending technology. Mandy calls herself a mother with a good idea, and this is very literally true. Her experience of motherhood inspired her to design products that were so innovative and impactful that Queen Elizabeth recognized her as a pioneer to the life of the nation. I have a very clear picture of where my story begins. My youngest daughter was born with a particular condition, um, something called Stickler's syndrome, and she had terrible problems with feeding. Stickler syndrome is a rare genetic disorder that can cause serious vision, hearing, and joint problems. Children born with Stickler syndrome often have distinct facial features, including a cleft palate, which makes nursing extremely difficult. Mandy had just had the experience of breastfeeding her twins, who were now 18 months old, and she assumed she would share the same bond with Emily. She couldn't feed using, or she couldn't breastfeed, that for a start, which was devastating for me. I just took it for granted she would breastfeed, and when she couldn't, it was, it was awful, and she couldn't bottle feed, and I tried just about everything that was out there. And in fact, she ended up being fed with a nasogastric tube, that's a tube that goes up the nose and down into, towards the stomach. Um, and she was on this tube for four months, because of UK guidelines, a child cannot leave the hospital until the tube is removed. So in order to go home, Mandy had to find an alternate way to feed her daughter. And the hospital recommended spoon feeding. And when I was trying to do it with a spoon, I mean, she was screaming and screaming and trying to get a spoonful of milk from a bowl into your baby's mouth when the baby's screaming. I mean, most of it ended up on my lap, if not all over her. Very little actually got into her. And then when she did take it, she was in such a state, she'd then vomit the whole lot back again. So that was disastrous. But it did tell me what was needed. Frustrated, Mandy gave up on the doctors finding a solution. She took a step back to analyze the problem and her options. My baby can't actually get any milk out of a receptacle. It's got to be put into her mouth. But the problem that I found with that was that she needed the physical comfort of suckling and also she needed the muscular development that suckling would give. I don't know if I worked it out when I was at home or when I was sitting with her in hospital, but I kind of worked out I need to find a way to get the milk in whilst she has the opportunity to suckle. It was Plato who first said, necessity is the mother of invention, meaning that when something is essential for survival, the human mind will find a way to solve the problem. Because my background had been in design, I'd been a graphic designer, I was kind of into visual problem solving and I, I had always had a good sort of three-dimensional imagination. 
Anyway, I managed to sort of cobble together an improvised idea, which was using an all-rubber dummy, and I chopped off half the flange of that. She sucked on the dummy, and I syringed the milk in the corner of her mouth. You know, it really was sort of roll your sleeves up and find something that works and improvise. And that enabled us to come home from hospital. So that was really the moment that I became an inventor. It was having to solve a problem for my own daughter. That sort of improvised idea then became the seed of my first invention, which was something called the Haberman feeder. And so an invention was born. To many, the process of feeding a baby is natural, automatic. But there are actually specific mechanics at play. Mandy had just had the experience of nursing her twins, so she was more than familiar with the process which allowed her to break down each piece of the puzzle. Typically, cleft lip and palate babies, it's very difficult to get suction. With a standard bottle and teat, the milk can sort of slosh around between the teat and the bottle. And there's a lot of air inside the bottle because the whole thing is not completely filled with milk. So what the Haberman does is to separate into two chambers, one that has the milk in the bottle and the air, and the teat, which once it's primed, is completely filled with milk. And there's a one-way valve that stops the milk going back into the bottle. So when the baby applies breastfeeding action, jaw action, and then a peristaltic wave of tongue action, those pressures are exerted on a fixed volume of liquid. So it's more efficient. You're not wasting energy on compressing air within the system. And that's why it's more effective. Mandy believed she had a great product that could potentially save mothers of babies with special needs from sleepless nights, stressful days, and long hospital stays. About two years into developing the product, Mandy reached a point where she wanted to put the bottle to the true test and into the hands of mothers. When I started to take the Haberman feeder prototype into hospitals to test with mums and their babies, I remember initially conversations with, we call them the sister, the person in charge of the ward. She said, oh, no, 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 we we spoon feed our babies. And I said, well, you know, this is an alternative to tube feeding. And it allows the baby to suckle. And she was very reticent to accept any change. And it took a lot to persuade her to let me sit with a mum that was having a lot of problems and try it out. And I remember this situation so vividly. I walked into one of the little wards and there was a mother there with a baby on her lap. And this sister, nursing sister, was with me. And we went in and the mother was in tears. She'd been trying to feed her baby and the baby couldn't feed. And in fact, the baby had stickler syndrome, which was the same thing that Emily had had. And we sat down together, we sterilised the bottle and and we put the milk into the Haberman feeder and then she used that for the baby and the baby fed straight away. And then we were both in tears because she was so relieved and she was so joyful that it worked and I was was just so moved by the whole situation. And the nursing sister said, this is wonderful and yes, you know, let's do this. And on the whole, I got a very good reaction. People knew that there was a problem, that something was needed to help babies that weren't run-of-the-norm babies. Babies actually had difficulties with feeding. And they welcomed my approach, particularly because it echoed breastfeeding. Difficult situations often inspire ingenious solutions. Necessity motivated Mandy to cobble together a quick fix to get Emily home from the hospital. And after seeing how her invention could help others in similar circumstances, she knew she had to get the bottle onto the market. The only question was, how? 
When I started out, you know, the books at the time didn't encourage you to be an entrepreneur. The books at the time said if you have an invention, the thing to do is to license it to a company who will then make it and sell it for you. So I thought, well, that's that's what I'll do. The problem was that because this was a feeder for a niche market, it was a specialist item. It wasn't general market with high volume sales. None of the companies that I w- went to initially were interested But one really nice marketing director said to me, look, I can see that this is an important product. There's a real need for this product. And I can see that you're passionate about it. Why don't you bring it to market yourself? And I have to say, up until that point, it hadn't crossed my mind to be an entrepreneur. Feeling empowered by words of validation from a market gatekeeper and fed up with the waiting game, Mandy realized that if she wanted to get the bottle out to the people who needed it most as soon as possible, she'd have to take matters into her own hands and her own home. And I set up a sort of mail order company from my kitchen table. And I was sort of a one-man band. I was doing everything myself from cutting the teats to sticking the stamps that went on the boxes. But I supplied hospitals and parents by mail order. And I spent a lot of time going to midwives and health professional conferences and seminars where I took a, a little stand and I'd tell people about it. Um, and I spent a lot of time going around to hospitals taking samples Um, and sitting with mums. So I got a lot of feedback and it was very helpful. And that's kind of how it all started. Thanks to angel donors' relentless self-marketing and word of mouth, demand for the Haberman feeder was high. After about, oh, I think it was about 18 months, many doctors' consultants, many dental consultants, speech therapy consultants were writing about the Haberman feeder and talking about it. So what started to happen then was that I started getting orders from overseas hospitals and it was all getting just a little bit out of hand. It was just me. I was working from home around the hours that my children were at nursery. The house was full of boxes. It was getting ridiculous and I was having to sort of clear everything away when it came to making supper in the evenings. So I thought something's got to give here. Now, either I've got to take premises and employ people and grow the business, or I'll have another go at licensing, but licensing for the overseas markets. And I guess I probably quite typically for many women that are starting out, particularly in those days, I don't think I had enough confidence in myself to go to the bank and use my house as security and take a loan. But I was able to negotiate a five-year license based on use of the um, trademarks and the copyright, but also the know-how that I had. And that went very well. Um, I mean, you know, it was never huge in terms of royalties, but it provided me with enough revenue to then go on and do my next project. Mandy's first invention was born out of her own desperation to help her daughter through an experience that most will never encounter. Her second idea would help parents on a much more universal level, and it came to her by surprise when she least expected it, on a play date. 
When Emily, my youngest, was was 10, um, she went to a school friend's house for tea, and it was an immaculate house. Everything was tidy, and there were uh, cream color carpets and peach upholstery, and, and there was another mum there with a child of Emily's age, but also a, a toddler. And, you know, a, a toddler running amok in a house like that can cause absolute havoc. And this little girl had a trainer cup, a conventional trainer, in a cup full of, I think it was black currant juice, and she ran across the carpet, leaving a trail of pink-coloured stains. And this poor mum was absolutely horrified. She sort of did a rugby dive and sort of tackled and grabbed the cup before it did any more damage. I was sitting there, and you know, I'd had three children in 18 months. I had been through the trainer cup stage with the puddles all over the floor and stains all over the upholstery. And I suddenly was able to look at it objectively rather than being a harassed mum just mopping up. And I looked at that and I thought, this is ridiculous. You had a cup base, a lid with a spout and a row of holes. And when you turned it upside down, it was like a watering can. And of course, kids love water play. So they used to deliberately sprinkle them all over the place and you'd spend your life mopping up. That was my light bulb moment. What you need is a cup that seals by itself when it comes out of the child's mouth. Watching a toddler wreak havoc on a chic apartment sparked a simple but wonderful idea. A cup for kids that was truly, reliably spill-proof. She immediately set to work developing and prototyping the concept. So for me, it's very much working things out with a pencil and paper and wandering around the kitchen trying to find bits and bobs to put together and stick together and, you know, I'm able to visualise in three dimensions quite well. I'll make things out of plasticine if I have to, um, or Play-Doh. With prototypes in hand, Mandy made a point to get a head start on protecting her technology from copycats and began laying the foundation to generate licensing opportunities. When I started out, I, I really didn't know anything about intellectual property or business or any of the legal stuff, anything like that. But I'd heard the word patent. So I, I went to a patent attorney and we made this application and I was very involved in the drafting of it. I wanted it to be exactly what I thought I had invented and I was very concerned to get the wording absolutely right. And then it went through the process and actually that very first patent went through remarkably quickly. While she felt more confident with one invention under her belt, she was well aware that leaving the niche market for bigger and better things would present her with bigger and more complex challenges. First of all, I thought this is a product very different to the Haberman feeder and it's not something that I'm going to be able to do from my kitchen table. The Any Way Up Cup is consumer market, it's going to be big volume sales, it's going to need warehousing and sales agents, the lot. So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll license it. That's the thing to do. Um, so I was offering my patent for license for somebody that would want to produce it and take it to market. This time around, potential licensors were immediately able to understand the product's value, but there always seemed to be a catch. Yes, yeah, so everybody that I went to see, all the companies that I went to offer a license, everybody thought, fantastic idea, you know, a, a trainer cup that really doesn't spill. Um, but none of them took a license. 
you know, one of them said to me, well, you know, you're just showing us a working model. We don't think it'll work in production. Another one said, well, yeah, we think it's great, but there's a long way to go before it's ready for production. Um, and therefore, we'll offer you a tiny, tiny royalty. And that really wasn't what I had in mind. Anyway, so I ended up walking around with this thing in my bag, uh, full of juice, of course, um, for about a year. And I thought, this is crazy. I've got to find a way of bringing it to market. As you can imagine, it was a challenge to get people excited about a sippy cup, especially when the innovative technology that makes it extraordinary isn't obvious to the naked eye. So I teamed up with two marketing guys and we thought, well, what we need to do is get it into the supermarkets because that's where the big volume sales were. So we sent literature to, and, you know, pictures and price lists and everything to the buyers of the major supermarket chains. But they, they all came back with the same response. You know, we're a one product company. They don't deal with one product companies and they weren't interested which was incredibly frustrating. So we thought we've got to make them sit up and take notice. To get her cup on store shelves, Mandy knew she'd have to be creative and audacious. What we did, we took one of our cups, which had a sort of a, a clear base. We filled it full of concentrated black currant juice and we put the lid on and we put it inside a white cardboard shoe box. We didn't use any shrink wrap or cling film or anything like that. No plastic bags. It was just a cup inside a big white cardboard box and the cup could roll around. And we sent it through the post, the mail, to the head buyer of one of our main supermarket chains that's called Tesco. We sent this thing through through the Royal Mail and we put a little note inside that said, if this reaches you as a soggy mess, well, then we have shot ourselves in the foot. But if it reaches you and it hasn't spilt, please, could you give us a call? Anyway, so we posted this thing and I was chewing my nails and four days later, the phone rang and it was the head buyer of Tesco's phoning us. And she said, this is amazing, and I want it, and I want it now. The bold move was a brilliant strategy, and the reward proved far greater than the risk of mailing a marketing director an unsolicited juice-soaked shoebox. It was a very fast turnaround, and we were on the shelves within a couple of months. And of course, once you get into one supermarket chain and you're successful, then others tend to follow so by the end of our first year, we had sold half a million cups and my business was in profit, which was pretty good going. Um, but I think what made the difference is we could have sent, you know, nowadays you'd send a video or you'd send all sorts of things. But putting the cup in her hands, she actually got the magic, you know, all the literature in the world wouldn't make any difference. But here she opened a box, she sees a cup full of blackcurrant juice. She can see a big hole in the spout. She can see the juice through the hole, and yet it hasn't come out. And that's when, you know, she, that's when her electric light went on. You know, she clicked, she got it, and she understood it. And that's what we needed to achieve. Thanks to proactive thinking, Mandy held a patent for the valve technology that made the Anyway Up Cup unspillable. Since filing, her patent has been cited in 103 other patents that have built upon her technology. Unfortunately, her competitors also appear to have seen the potential. We got into the market. We were in Tesco's and the other supermarkets, and our sales were growing incredibly fast. 
we took 40% market share in the UK, which meant that we had taken market share away from the pre-existing market leader. And lo and behold, they came out in the market with a product which was very much like my early prototype. And in fact, this was a company that I had been to see and, you know, they got all excited about it. And we talked about heads of terms and then they went quiet on me and they didn't return my prototype. So lo and behold, 18 months later, they come out in the market with a competing product that infringes my patent. She felt cheated and wasn't going to let the company that appropriated her idea take back the market share she worked so hard to secure. So then it was a right, what do we do about this? And I thought, well, you know, that's okay. I I had legal costs insurance and I thought it's all going to be fine. I went to see my patent attorney and he said, yep, this is an infringement and you should go to a solicitor because you can enforce your patent and you can stop them. And I thought, well, that's, you know, fine, I can do this. So full of confidence, I went along to my solicitor and then she explained some facts of life to me. She may have been confident, but she was at odds with the UK's tricky IP laws of the 1990s. In the UK, a simple case that gets to the high court is going to cost the losing side at least a million pounds because in the UK, the loser has to pay both sides' costs and damages. So suddenly I thought, well, I've got insurance, but my insurance cover was only for £100,000, which was nowhere near enough. I mean, it was enough for two meetings with my lawyer and not even enough left over for a cup of tea afterwards, you know. I was woefully underinsured and it was very unfortunate because at the time when this infringement happened, I had in fact licensed my colleagues and I had personally ceased to be a limited company. So when I took the action, I had to take it in my own personal name, which meant if I lost, I would lose the house. I would have to take my children out of their schools. It would be totally devastating. Not only was challenging the infringement a huge financial liability, but Mandy was also at risk of losing her patent, along with everything she'd worked so hard for. In the UK system, if somebody infringes and you want to enforce your patent rights, then the other side will claim that your patent is not valid. And the whole thing gets examined again in court. The whole legal action for uh, patent enforcement at the same time is an action that they take for invalidity and they claim that your patent's not valid. And the judge hears the case and has to decide whether A, the patent is valid and it should have been granted, and also whether it's actually being infringed by this other company. The risks were too high to make the decision lightly. And my lawyers sat me down and they said, you know, nobody goes to court. You'd be mad to go to court. You must settle. We tried to have settlement meetings with the other side, but we couldn't come to an acceptable settlement, if you like. So there was nothing else for it. Either I had to turn the other cheek and walk away or I had to fight. And then it was a remarkable thing because, you know, I'm okay. I'm only four foot ten. I'm not, I'm somebody who shrinks away from confrontation. I hate arguments and fights. I sat there and I was getting more and more upset and I suddenly realised why. And that was because I'd worked for five years, no longer, six years on this. I was starting to make money. This was my golden opportunity and I'd done all this work and it was mine. It was kind of like my baby. 
and I realized that if I didn't fight for what was mine, if I didn't fight for my baby, I didn't think I could live with myself. Mother's intuition kicked in again, and this time it wasn't just personal. It was a matter of principle. If I didn't set a precedent and stop this company from infringing, then every other business in this market would also infringe, and I wouldn't have any business left. It was also that sort of light bulb moment of realizing, I have to do this, I have to do this for me. And that kind of changed everything. And when I said to my lawyers, I have to do this, it was suddenly, right, let's do this, roll up our sleeves, let's get into it. And I think they really wanted me to make the decision. They didn't want to influence me in any way other than to make me realize just how risky it was. It had to be my decision. Mandy, a self-made entrepreneur, found herself up against a powerful opponent, and she had to prove that her idea was not only important, but truly unique. The other side claimed that my invention was obvious. You know, they were baby nipples, baby teats on bottles that had slip valves in. Um, slip valves in this industry were not new. And the prior art showed that for hundreds of years, people have been trying to create a totally non-spill cup for children. So the commercial need was out there. The answer to the problem was under the noses of everybody in the industry, but none of them had done it. And when I did it and the cup went into the market, it was a huge commercial success. So the judge decided that it cannot have been obvious because if it was obvious, then the other side would have done it, but they only did it after I came into the market with it. So the case was actually decided on non obviousness and commercial success. That actually set a legal precedent and my case gets taught to law students and um, anyway, we went to court, we won, yay. <laughs> Mandy's landmark win in court solidified her business standings. Over the last 30 years, Haberman Products and the Anyway Up Cup have achieved great success with over 42 million products using her patented technology sold each year. As of today, she is a named inventor on a total of 73 individual granted patents. The thing that excites me is innovation and inventing new products, new technologies. And IP is the backbone of my business because if you identify a need in the market, it's because there isn't an adequate solution to the problem already in the market, which means there's a gap in the market. So by innovating and creating products that fulfill needs, there's always going to be some form of intellectual property attached to it. After successfully enforcing her intellectual property rights through the courts, Mandy has become an advocate for improvements in the patent system and is a recognized authority on corporate IP theft and infringement. She's also using her platform to empower women inventors and entrepreneurs to help close what she refers to as the patent gender gap. Yeah, it's a very strange reality that there are far more inventors that are men, far more people patent their inventions who are men than women. And I don't know why that should be, because women solve practical problems all day. You know, if, if, if you have a family, if you have a household to look after, if you're trying to juggle work and kids, you have to find solutions to problems all of the time. We are, women are very good at that. 
And I don't know why it is that more women don't patent ideas, don't become inventors, don't become entrepreneurs. I think numbers will increase now that I look at my, my daughter's generation and, in fact, my grandchildren's generation as they go through. And I don't think they're even aware of a gender gap. I think the girls, when they're at school and at college, they feel that their opportunities are exactly the same as their peers that are male. I think that the problems come when you start a family and different responsibilities, financial issues that face women if, if you have a family. And I think by nature, men are slightly less risk adverse than women. Women, I think, feel their responsibilities very strongly and are less keen to risk the family silver, if you like. I don't know what it is that holds women back from taking that chance, because certainly they are just as creative, if not more so. Mandy's story is an incredible example of the power of a mother with a good idea who's not afraid of a fight. She used her personal experience and her knack for design to build an empire that has served parents and children for over 30 years. I think my, my best advice is believe in yourself. There's no such thing as glass ceilings. You, you can fly as high as you dream. I think this sort of niggling little voice inside of you that stops you doing things. I think you have to find a way of dealing with that. I, I found a way that works for me. I've given it a name. I call that little voice Colin. Um, no offence to anyone called Colin out there. It's just Colin was what came to mind. So when that little voice says, oh, you know, you're not good at that. You can't do that. You, you shouldn't do this. Um, I just now say, oh, shut up, Colin. And it's easier to do that than telling yourself to shut up. Special thanks to our guest, Mandy Haberman. You can learn more about her story and products at mandyhaberman.com. I'm Andrea Madho, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwell Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.